Hi, everybody. I cannot believe that I get to say this, but today's episode is with the poet and writer Maggie Smith. It was such an incredible honor to get to sit down and talk to her about her beautiful, incredible, innovative, very unique and different memoir that published last week, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, which is the last line of her viral poem, Good Bones, from her book of poetry, Good Bones. So let me tell you a little bit about Maggie if you don't already know about her God, you're in for a treat. She's a poet, a writer, an editor, and a teacher. She's published several books of poetry and prose, including Good Bones, and two recent bestsellers, Keep Moving and Goldenrod. Her most recent book, which published last week, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Um, She's on book tour for that right now. I'm actually going to get to see her today. Her poems and essays have appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Guardian, Paris Review, Tin House, Washington Post, The Best American Poetry. When she's not writing, she is teaching an MFA program or editing books for other poets. She's usually hanging out with her favorite human beings, her daughter and son, and they live in Columbus, Ohio, which is indeed her hometown. Enjoy this episode, you guys. I absolutely adored it. Maggie, thank you so much for this. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am beside myself. I, honest to God, did not sleep last night, my husband can tell you, because I am sitting down today with Maggie Smith. And I love on your profile, it says, not the dame, not the actress, Maggie Smith, although she's welcome. Come and come and be on Grief is My Side Hustle, the extraordinary poet and writer who we all love. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. Thanks for having me. You have been lightly stalked by me, which is I again, <laughs> I can only advocate this technique because it has only so far worked well for me. And we have some people in common, which also always helps to make the lightly stalking person seem more sane. <laughs> I was lucky enough to get a copy of the ARC copy of your extraordinary memoir that is coming out. What's the date? When, how soon, how soon does the world get it? April 11th. Right. So soon. Yeah. So I get you on the front end and you're about to hit the whole rigmarole, but it is called, we could make this place beautiful. I'll just show it to anybody who is going to see a video of this. Let's let's jump right in. Can you tell us about the book and how it connects to the story of grief and loss? Yeah, um, you know, I, I do think of divorce as something that you um, experience grief through. So there are, I mean, there are other losses that I write about in the memoir, but I think the the central loss is the loss of my marriage and you know, for anyone who's been through that, I think we all know it's not just the loss of that person. It's like the loss of the family unit. It's the loss of that for your children. If you have children, it's the loss of, um, the future that you envisioned for yourself that you thought was sort of like settled and signed off on and done, you know, and it's also the loss of the person that you were with them, you know, so I write about in the book about how, you know, all of, I mean, there's all this stuff that reminds me of that person, but there's also just like, where do you put all the intangible stuff? What happens to all the kind of institutional knowledge about you and that you've, all the years you share with someone else, all the private jokes, all the little songs you make up, all the nicknames, all the just there's so much shared experience that like, where does that all go? Where are you supposed to hold it when the person's no longer there? And, and that's something that people with, you know, deal with, with death loss too. It's just, it's just, it's incredibly tricky when you still have to have some contact with because the person because yeah. of children. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, maybe not forever. I mean, I'm not conscripting myself to that. You're like, um, Megan, please, Megan, in date. my mind, Circle I know when my, my yeah. son graduates from high school in X year. Oh, and okay. that is yeah. the, that is the date at which I, I think this will be a little bit more freeing for me. Um, but yeah, there's a, a sort of haunting 
that happens. You know, I'm still in the same house. I'm raising my kids. I'm in the same neighborhood. We have a lot of the same physical items, right, in our home. And so, um, you know, dealing with grief and loss with someone who's still alive, but is no longer the same part of my life. That's, I think that's really the core, um, the core sort of grief in the book. What I'm always so struck by is how little preparation or instruction or guidance we're given around even just like how something might feel. Mm. And in the grief world, we talk about sudden loss versus so I talk about um my mom died suddenly, my dad died over a year, and I feel like I participated in his death. Yeah. Right. So like my brain wasn't hit by a frying pan. I little incrementally, and I'm not saying it's less painful, but I got to see him mm-hmm. and knowledge in smaller pieces that he's dying. And I'm, I'm struck again in non-death losses. There's often that too, where there's like the sudden versus the, you know, we participate. I felt the, I felt the dissolution of my marriage. And what mm-hmm. you start the book with is really letting us know there's a story and there's a pine cone and there's a postcard. And, you know, it makes the reader hold their breath like, mm-hmm. oh, shit, this is <laughs> not going to go. This is going to be hard. This is going to be hard. Yeah. Almost immediately you introduce some writing structures that are, I just, I'm obsessed with. And one of them is the idea that there's a play going on. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm so interested in how that mechanism came forward for you. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think writing poems for so long, even though I use I in my poems, right? Sometimes the I is not quite me. And even when it is kind of me, like it's I and it's mostly my kids and it's mostly my dog and I'm writing about my neighborhood. There's still some like artistic distance there because a poem has a speaker, right? It's not necessarily me, Maggie Smith, the person sitting in this chair. And when I started working on the memoir, I was like, oh, the I is just me. Like Uh, there's no cover. There is no cover. And even in a poem, if it's like the cover is like tracing paper, like it's not deep cover at all. It's like in a cartoon where there's like a giant yogi bear hiding behind a very thin tree. Like it's not really cover, but it's it's like enough. And, And maybe also coupled with the fact that it's in the form of a poem and it's probably going to be read by a narrower audience because of the fact that it's a poem. Yeah. Um, and you can maybe use metaphor and other devices to kind of like hold really personal information slightly away from yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, writing, you know, a personal essay or writing memoir is it's a really different sort of much more naked <laughs> experience. Um, and so one of the things I did working on this book was come up with ways that made Um, made it more comfortable for me and allowed me to sort of look at things from different angles. And the the framework of the play, I mean, I remember where I was when I I wrote the first section of that. I was sitting outside a coffee shop in my neighborhood and I just said, you know, what if this, what if this were something I could write about from third person? Like, what if I were hovering over this scene and watching it from a distance? What does it look like? Like, what kind of character am I? What have I been told about this play? Like, was I given a script ahead of time? Um, what white might we be able to stage and what things are not able to be staged? Because I don't even know what, what's happening there. Like, what does the audience get to see? And so I just sat down with my legal pad and just really unpacked mm. this idea. And I had such a good time doing it. It yeah. felt so different to write about the experience in third person and in, in this sort of meta way that I thought, and that's going to be a thread, I think, in this book. I'm going to come back to these ideas of, of plot and character and inciting incident and crisis and perspective as a way to kind of access some other parts of the story, but also just um, 
protect my heart a little bit in the process too. You, uh, so I just had chills the whole time you were talking and I, I'm like, oh, I, I get, I get what you're saying now, because to me and to the reader and for people who are listening this, I think it will feel this way. It feels like this ingenious structure. It feels Mm -hmm. like, um, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with John Irving books because there's not a single detail in a book that isn't going to loop back around by the time you're in the last chapter. And I just couldn't imagine having a mind that could hold that. I mean, I got so in the, like, I could take a college course on this because I was like, oh my God, look, and now she's using italics and oh my God, now she's talking about plot. And now she's, and I really wanted you next to me to be like, so just tell me, tell me why I'm with you a (laughs) hundred percent, but now I'm with you a hundred percent because the, the writing class that I teach, which is called writing through trauma is really about being able to create a narrative that works for you. And a minute ago, we talked about sort of like, look, the book is not about your ex-husband. It's about your experience with your grief. The memoir that I wrote is not about the dysfunction that might exist in my family. It's about how I became traumatized. Mm. And it's tricky because there are some writers and writing coaches out there that are like, you have to write the blood, sweat, and tears on the page or it's not real. But what I know when you go through a trauma is you have to have boundaries so that you can hold the story, right? So that it can be yours, you can hold it in your hands and it doesn't trigger you or some freaking interviewer doesn't say like, oh, well, you wrote about this so I can ask you about this. And all of a sudden, you know, they're they're asking you questions that make you feel like you've been stripped naked. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think in some ways that comes down to sort of like, why write the book? And if you're writing the book because you want to share something with someone, that's different from writing a book because you're um, you want to reveal a bunch of information, right? So, the way that I wrote the book, <laughs> I think in some ways, is revealing about the purpose for me, which is that I was trying to figure something out for myself. Yeah. And so my allegiance in the book as much as I knew there would be readers, right? And as much as I want readers to, I don't know if enjoy is quite the right word, but I want readers to, you know, get something out of the book to to maybe see themselves in parts of the book or feel less alone in their own experience as they spend time inside the book. My allegiance really in the book was to myself as a writer and to my children, um, which is why I, it's not a tell-all. Um, And I really, you know, is there a lot more I could have said? Of course, but to what end and to what purpose? And so if the purpose of the book for me was to sort of figure something out about myself and about my adult life and in sort of reckoning with the past, make enough peace with it to feel like better in the present and to feel better moving into the future, then that's, that explains, I think, sort of the structure and some of the the sort of artistic choices I made in the book. Well, it's so that answer is so helpful, but also it feels to me like, you know, in my world, we're teaching people a lot of things and, and also people often come to those things intuitively. So Mm. you're describing that through the writing of poetry and the, and the sort of being intentional around words that you could be inside it, but not more than you wanted. And that the memoir was kind of pushing that edge and you had to use what I would say is a lot of like very creative structure. It's sort of the play, but it also feels like you're the director giving notes to the actors and to the playwright. I mean, it just, and, and again, it's so that you can tell your story for you. Other people might want to know, uh, well, and then what happened? Like yes. that's what this book is about. This book is not about, and then what happened? Yeah. And I think that's a really um, beautiful distinction. Do you have a copy of it close by? Can I get you to read? Oh, sh- and look, she has it to hand. I do. I have, I have early finished copies now. I, I, minus the arc, when you, I saw you on your um, Instagram, the fact that they put your handwriting on the spine, just it's like. It's pretty it, amazing. You know, I know. People who love books, love books. They just right. love them. 
And the process yeah. of, of actually making a book is such a cool thing. Again, I feel like we should have classes on that with like a typesetter who comes in and says like, well, do you want to write out the word O-N-E or do you just want it to be a check? Oh, I'm, anyway, such, a, I'm such a geek. I would love that. I know. I, I, <laughs> the Zippy Books people gave a class like that. And I was like, is there extra? I want to keep, I never thought about that before. And now I open books and I'm like, oh, look, it's centered on, you know, in the yes. center instead of typeset to the left. Will you read page 66? Cause I feel like this, um, I feel like this is ex exactly what you've just said to us. We're going to see if page 66 is the oh, yeah. same. Oh yeah. It's some people will ask. Yes. It's the same. Yep. Okay. Some people will ask, why are you telling these stories? Why air your dirty laundry? Someone will ask this, or if they don't ask, they'll think it. Maybe you're thinking it now. How do I answer? I could say what happened to me is mine. I could say that suffering equals pain plus resistance and I'm no longer resisting, no longer holding it in, letting it fester. And why would you expect me or anyone to grit my teeth and quietly carry my story? I could say there is a cost to carrying your truth but not telling it. I could say women have been doing this for decades and look where it's landed us. I could say I've gone and lost my narrative and lost not only my understanding of the future, but also my understanding of the past. And this is how I'm trying to find it. Who's calling this laundry dirty anyway? It's just lived in. Next question. <laughs> there is a real strong thread about women in marriages, being a woman in a marriage. And part of what unfolds is that your professional life changes significantly over the course of your marriage, which you invite us into. So let's assume that not everybody knows your incredibly viral poem and the driver for the title of the book, but can you just give us a little bit of history and maybe talk about that piece, because I feel like it's on every page. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been writing, um, you know, poems since my teens. Yeah. Um, so I was writing poems in college. I went to graduate school for poetry. Um, I had published uh, a book of poems before I got married, actually, um, but was in a relationship with my ex-husband at the time. And so poetry writing and publishing has been a part of my life, um, my entire adult life, including the entire length of, of that relationship. But when my poem Good Bones went viral, that was in 2016, yeah. um, things just picked up a little bit, I guess is the, is the best way I can say it. So I, I had a, a uh, I signed with a lecture agent at that time because more and more emails were coming in um, for interviews or teaching workshops or, you know, visiting a college to talk to students and do a reading, things like that. Um, and so I had, you know, a little bit of travel with my first couple of books, yeah. conferences, workshops. But when Good Bones went viral, I think it just widened my readership yeah. enough that I was more in demand as a poet and as a teacher. And so the travel picked up a little bit. Now that's not to say I was, you know, gone, you know, four months out of the year. It might've been like two weekends or, you know, a couple times a month for a couple of days yep. or a week here or there. Um, it still wasn't a lot because I had small kids, you yeah. know, when that poem went viral, I had, um, you know, what, like a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. So it, it's, um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot I could do because I was, the primary caregiver and I worked from home, which is part of why I was the primary caregiver. And I just um, felt the pressure and the sort of pushback in my marriage about the, the sort of time and energy that my writing was taking and not the writing of it, but the needing to take it out into the world and be the sort of face of it. Um, right. And of course, you know, you know, I know that this is what this is what publishers expect from writers. If yeah. you they invest in you by publishing something 
that part of part of your responsibility to them and and most of all to your work is to help get it to readers and um I was really excited about the opportunity to do that but the flip side of that is that it caused friction at home well and I'm thinking about you know again sort of who who are writers and and what how do they write? And I would, I would say most of the folks that I, um, that I know and love who write are slightly less comfortable about all that other stuff. So the, uh, the other stuff of going to the conferences and doing the talking and doing is actually harder. Yeah. Oh yeah. And 100%. So part, of, part of the thread that's in around that is like, here, this is, you know, measurably demonstratively it's success your writing is successful writing in this way that is reflected back to you which should feel good but doesn't always feel good right because it's a million more emails and it's people who want things from you and and then there's the 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 action of it's actually hard to do it's hard to be away from small kids it's hard to go and give these conferences. Like it's not a vacation. You're not no. going for Bora, <laughs> you know, to wear your bikini the whole time. It's not a vacation. And so part of part of what I think you do so beautifully is you just put that out there. You're not, you're not giving us deep analysis on it. You're just saying this is what this felt like. And what it shows in those early chapters is like, oh, she's transforming already. And it makes me think about that. I have when when my first kid was born, she's 15 now. My best friend said, Look, I'm just gonna tell you a thing that I know. And I was mm-hmm. like, What? And she was like, a kid is either gonna bring out the trouble you had with your parents or the trouble you have in your marriage. And Ooh. I was like, Oh, dang. Ooh, right? maybe you could have told me that before I, I went know. down this path. I was like, so just <laughs> like be prepared that you're either gonna have more tension around your family or you're gonna um or, or both. Gonna, Maybe you'll hit the jackpot. Yeah. What I was really struck by was that I was the trouble in my marriage for quite a bit of that. My expectations of having been raised by a mom who mommed as her full-time job. Yep. What I have been swallowing for decades about what I am supposed to do and be was, I don't, I don't even know what, I don't even know how I think about it. But what I know is when my mom died, And we had to like quickly, my husband had to like, he had to take the keys to our life. Like he was on birthday parties. He was on soccer pickup. He was on grocery duty. We had this inane conversation. I was flying to treatment. We're in the car and I'm telling him that he's going to need to remember to buy paper towels. I mean, he didn't say to me, like, I have two master's degrees. I can buy paper towels. But, and so I said in kind of a shitty way, like you have never had to think about paper products. No. So I'm just a little worried. And he's like, well, we may run out of napkins, but it will be okay. Yeah. Right. And then when I, (laughs) right. So like when you have a quote unquote nervous breakdown, people will not like that. I'm using that word, but I use it sort of with irony. Like when you can't do any of your things, boy, oh boy, is it clear what you have been taking on as though it was yours. And when you take it on it as if it is yours, it is yours. It becomes yours. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about, because again, you do this really delicate unravel, like pulling back the layers of like, here you are becoming something and it's not all, it's not just like, oh my God. And then she gets the Academy Award. Like it's hard work and there's something undoing at the same time that maybe be undone. Yeah. That maybe needed to be undone. That's true. Um, You know what? It's, I didn't really, I think I knew how much I was doing Mm -hmm. as the sort of primary caregiver, but so much of that labor, you know, we call it invisible labor for a reason. So much of that, it's like stuff just, just quote gets done. Right. Right. Um, And so what I learned when I did leave the house, if I was gone for two days to do a college visit or for a week to teach a workshop, that invisible labor came and became incredibly visible or my absence became incredibly visible and problematic, right? Because if you've taken on a certain percentage of the family pie chart, right? 
like especially a lot of it, you know, the bulk of it. <laughs> and like also most, most of it. Most of it. If yeah, you've taken yeah. on most of the family pie chart, yeah. then when you are not home, that pie chart needs to be handled by someone else. That's right. It's not just the the like, okay, well, that stuff's yours this week because I'm not around. First of all, that still is working from the assumption that it's mine and you're right. covering for instead me. of ours. Exactly right. right. Like, you're like covering for me. They're babysitting their own kids. Yeah. Thanks for doing my job for me. Yeah. 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 Um, and so there's like there's that piece of it, but then there's the then there's the piece of like, so what does it mean? Like, how does the person feel? about taking on the pie chart. And I think something that I started to see happening, and I write about this in the book, is like if I was at a writing conference with a bunch of writers, I would notice other, particularly moms, having a different experience with phone calls home or, or just sort of like how they talked about being away as opposed to my experience. Um, and I, I realized like, oh, so some people have, even if they have my pie chart, there are people who have my pie chart, but who, when they go away for a week, the, the attitude about their absence is not what I think the attitude about my absence is. Right. And so what does that mean? And like, what does it mean to try to, because of shifting responsibilities or, um, you know, if, if someone gets a promotion or if, if someone decides to change jobs or whatever the thing is, like what happens if many years into a relationship, particularly with children, you need to or want to renegotiate the terms, yeah, right? And you want to look at the pie chart, yeah, and maybe not even look at the pie chart 365 days out of the year. You know, frankly, I my pie chart still looks exactly the yes, same as right. it did before. And actually my pie chart is basically just a circle now. As a now it's all you. Yeah. It's just me. And, and I don't, I, I don't resent it. And actually like, I like buying the paper towels yeah. yep. <laughs> because at least I know they're getting, and you bought. know what you're getting the right ones. It's fine. Right. Um, but yeah, what, what, what happens when you need to, or want to renegotiate terms in your relationship and what happens when that renegotiation um, is seen as an opportunity for one person, but a burden or inconvenience for the other person. And so it makes us, th- it makes us sort of reevaluate everything about the relationship, how we view partnership, um, even the concept of partnership. That's right. And so, uh, you know, it's funny, like, I think some of the grieving in the book was really grieving that I did during those years you know, before I even knew that the marriage wouldn't work because I just thought, you know, I think if the roles were reversed, I hope I would be happy and supportive and like willing to sort of show up in a different way now and then without crankiness about it. Right. And the fact that I, that I would want to, I would hope, I mean, one never knows, you know, I, I would hope that I wouldn't be resentful or, um, you know, territorial about certain things, but, but one never knows, I suppose, until it happens, it happens in your house. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the inanity maybe of even being married is that, you know, we're constantly changing and shifting and morphing and, and we're just betting that this person is going to be able to do that with us. Yeah. Right. And, and so it makes sense actually that it, we get to a certain point in the road where it's like, nope, it, the thing that we thought we were going to be able to do with these new details and new compass points, like it's not going to work out. And I, and I think, and what I think is so extraordinary about how you've written this book, everything is extraordinary about how you wrote the book, but you could go the easy way of saying, well, there was an infidelity. Mm. Right? And so I'm the wronged party here. What you do so beautifully is you take us into what this feels like. And you do sort of say like, you know, it's up to you how you feel about this. I'm really not writing this for you. You're kind of like looking in at the play or you're Mm -hmm. looking in at the concert, but really this is my concert. And that description of sort of coming to understand that who you need to be in our becoming is actually for whatever reason doing damage or not, or breaking down or something that maybe 
already was breaking down, but now we really can, we can really see it. You know, there's a lot of grief in those early chapters that, that even though this is your story and very specific, and this is one of the things that's so extraordinary about writing, none of this happened to me, but I understand it. Can I get you to read one more page for me, which is on 82 in my book, it's on second thought, which again, I think is the, it's the writing of the thing that you just said. Yep. This one, I was like, oh. On second thought, reader, I posed a question. Did my children see their father's job as more real than mine because it happened outside the home and because I was the primary caregiver? I suspect the answer is yes. And honestly, that perception might endure. But here's something I've come to terms with since the divorce. I treated my husband's job as more real, more important than mine too. He was the primary breadwinner. His work paid our living expenses and provided our family's health insurance. Financially, we could have managed without my income, but we couldn't have managed without his. Reader, tell me, when one person outearns another in a marriage, is an imbalance of power inevitable? Is the spouse who earns less expected to take on more of the domestic labor? Is that the deal, spoken or unspoken? Marriages are co-created. Whatever ours looked like, we built that together. We inherited parts of it too. I So I have lots of writing and underlining on this page. One thing that I just want to point out because I think it I think this is a thread that that felt made me feel safe in how much intensity there is in the book. You on the pre- page pre- previous on page 81, you asked the same question in the last paragraph. Do my, did my children see my father's their father's job is more real than mine because it happened outside of the home because of the work. So it's you're taking these themes and you're looking at it, what about the children, what about him, what about me, what about the world? And um I don't know, there's something gentle about a very hard concept, right? Which is like, Mm -hmm. we're just going to keep returning to it. We're going to return to the theme, which is a lot like poetry in my mind. A lot (laughs) like, right? Like the themes and the cadence and the the poetry. What was this like in terms of a mechanism of helping you move through? Because I've asked you to read from some of the early parts of the book, but it, one of the, one of the things that's so meaningful is that you do start to feel the, the, like you are coming into your narrative. You're holding the story differently by the end. So can you talk just about how the, how the writing helped with that? Like how, how did the process sort of create the product? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I agree with, I agree with you that the the back third of the book feels brighter than the first third of the book say. And, and when recording the audiobook, the first day was hard. I bet. I mean, just sort of, you know, again, prepare oneself for right. the recording of right. the audio version of something right. that causes you pain <laughs> right. because how, you know, you write the different sections and the different chapters and the different stories all of these things you can write on different days over the course of years, right? But then you're going to sit in a booth for five hours and read page after page after page. And it just, the first third of the book was day one of three days of recording. And it just hit me like a wall. I came home, I got in the bathtub, like I just Ah. listened to music and I just... I had to kind of like cow. I had to have a cow gone moment. Take me away. Take me away. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, the the writing of this book really was sort of me having a conversation with myself. Yeah. And so the the returns, you know, like on second thought, you know, why am I asking how my kids saw my work? Really, I need to dig a little deeper there. Like I need to drill a little deeper and self-interrogate. And so there's a lot of self-interrogation that happens in this book. And some of it's just uncomfortable. Like, and, and, and I came up with like pretty uncomfortable, sort of unsavory things sometimes, which is like, I'm not perfect. I wasn't the easiest person to live with. I have my own little ticks and things that probably some people would really find charming and other people would find maddening. Like I'm a human being. Um, and also I absolutely did what I'm asking myself and the reader, what I think my kids did, which is relegate my work 
to a lower category of importance, both because of the financial sort of piece of it, but probably also because of how much time it was allowed to occupy in my life. Because my domestic work, the raising of kids, the running of the house, the planning of the stuff, the keeping the whole calendar in mind, all of that took a lot more time than my writing. Yeah. Like I was more a mom. Yeah. Um, and I'm um, frankly, like I write about this in the book, like some of my neighbors didn't even know <laughs> that I was a writer. I was Maggie who pushed the stroller. Right. That's right. So, um, you know, having to really like reckon with that myself and just be like, I, I co-created this family system, any relationship, whether it's a marriage, a parent child relationship, a working partnership, um, your, your like sauciest group text yeah. All of that is co-created. Like you're, you're an ingredient, right? So it's nothing is being handed to you. You're not getting a script, you know, to go back to the play. So like what choices, I had to really sit and reckon with the choices I made from my early twenties and That's probably right. before then, you know, all the way up to the sort of present of the book and like, okay, I made this too. Like I created some of these problems too. This is not the story of like a good woman who was in a bad marriage. This yeah, is a story right. of like two people who met young, sort of negotiated a kind of relationship, then had two kids, then had career changes. And then a lot of stuff happened, dot, dot, dot. And it just, it ended up not working. Yeah. Like we just couldn't get on the same page about the things that were really important to us. Um, what was really meaningful to me is that it's not a post, it's not a trauma story with a postmortem. Here's why this happened. I've done this analysis. Here's what I know. You know, I talked to a oh, friend. Megan, if only like, right. that's what I hoped it would be. I'm going to be really honest and say, when I sat down to write this book, what I really hoped in my naive writerly mind, in my grieving mind, what I, what I needed from the book was to feel better. And what I hoped from the book was that I would write deeply and think and feel deeply enough into this experience that I would solve it, that I would have all the answers and that I could finally set it down. Yeah. And I would be like, well, I've got it all figured out. This is why this happened. This is why this didn't work. This is why this went this way. Well, look, okay, postmortem completed. Now right. I can move on and write something else. And that's not quite what happened. <laughs> no. And that's such a great way of describing it. And I think, um, I think that the, the idea of putting something down means that it's something that happened to you and didn't transform you, right? Like, because you become, you become. And so one of the phrases I use in therapy, I use it here a lot is like, you know, it's kind of always going to be this way, which Ugh. is brutal. Right. But it's, it was always going to go down like this. It's not a failure. It's not, and I don't, I don't mean that in a, you know, is our life predestined. Right. I mean that I don't know anybody who doesn't look at lots of the choices in their life and say, I don't know how these things happened. Yeah. You know, maybe I sat down and was like, yes, I want to have a third kid, but there's just as many other people who were like, yeah. And then we had a third kid. And so then when we're looking at the, the sort of elements of how it's like, well, this is what was going to happen. You didn't fail at it. Yeah. It's that all of the pieces, we can't be consciously deciding everything. And I have a, another writer friend and we joke about how like we want to go to Esalen and we want to teach a class that's like secretly kind of like a writing through trauma narrative therapy class. But really what we're going to advertise it as is like taking stock of your life at 45 and older because we know so many women who are like, how did this happen? I didn't sign up for this. Oh my gosh. It's, but, but, you know, it's the talking are. head song. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's the talking head. It's how did I get here? This is not my beautiful life. How That's did exactly I get here? Right. And I think we're all, I think the pandemic has made it a sort of like peak crisis where particularly moms were all like, how did we get saddled with getting the entire world yeah. <laughs> through this? Um, when we, like many of us have partners who could be doing this with us too, but I hear this over and over from my middle-aged friends. I mean, I'm 46 and we're all just like, 
how did I get here? And if we retrace our steps, you know, it's like the choose your own adventure book. If you retrace your steps, you can drive yourself absolutely mad. Yeah, it's not really thinking, possible to do. It's not. You can't think, well, if I had just chosen to do this instead, if I had just at this point, and, and part of the writing of this book for me was like rewinding yeah. and trying to go back and think, okay, so at this point, what was still possible? Like, That's was right. it already... Was it already turning? And the answer is like, it was already, it was turning the moment it started. Like we were already on these paths where I was going to become a poet and I was going to have kids and I was going to take on the bulk of the child raising because that's what I saw as a child in my own home. Like wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be different. Right. And to be honest, if I went back and did it over, I don't really see myself even knowing what I know now doing it any differently. I wouldn't have said you go off to work every day, but you still have to do all the doctor's appointments and the baking of the Valentine's day treats. And I'll be home watching you do that. Like I would still do it the same way. And it would still end probably the same way or with some slight variation, right? Like over and over again. And in some ways, that's not the postmortem I was expecting. You know, the answer I was not expecting was like, well, this was going to happen. Yeah. And that's the answer I came to. I know. I think part of that, like, it makes me think of the concept of forgiveness that people are always like, I want to forgive. And I'm like, I understand that. I totally get it. It's like wanting to have wisdom or insight about something. Why wouldn't we want those things? But it's something that happens to us and that we Mm. become we become an energy of forgiveness. And so you can practice that. You can get up with rituals and you can invite it in like enlightenment, but it isn't something that we get to achieve. And when we look at things that are trauma laden, Mm. it's choices I made and things that happened to me. There is no way to unwind because you are who you are now reflecting back on a person that you don't wholly remember because you have changed and, and, and in some ways it's a little disrespectful to yourself back then to it, to, you know, almost imply that she could or should have done it differently instead yeah. of saying we are where we are and I'm here for you now. I show up for this moment. And again, yeah. that's what I feel like the book does over and over is you take the same thoughts and ideas multiple times. I mean, you have this mechanism of a note on plot, which I just, you know, like, what is the point of plot? Are we going to get any plot or is there an arc? I mean, you're kind of giving a masterclass on writing inside the book, which is just so gorgeous. But the idea again is like, we can only look back in retrospect to be able to see what the plot of our life is, you know? Yeah. And many of us are in the transition and the change while we're having to make choices, which our brain is not exactly wired for that. Like we don't know how to make you. So you just kind of have to hold on tight and hope. And, and, and I think again, divorce is one of those things where we're like, oh, she's going through a divorce. Like you're going to Mexico. Like, oh, and then she'll be back. You know, then she'll be back. You don't come back. Yeah. No, you, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a time of transformation. And so some of the friends that you go into the divorce with are not going to make it out the other side. And maybe some of the things that you used to do on a regular basis, they're not, we're not doing those anymore. And we're going to try these instead. But what I talk about in grief a lot is like, what are you becoming? How are Mm. you becoming? What are the newness and the things and the, it's not, should you, or should you not like we're here now? Here yep. we are. We're here now. Yeah. So what, so what do you want that to look like? And I, I think it, I was reading, you know, people sent books when I got divorced, yeah. bless them. I mean, oh, I'm wow. a writer going through a divorce, you know, people sent the books I mean, oh, people sent a lot them. of like lovely things, but books and, and reading Pema Chodron was really helpful. And just like, do you want peace or do you want a war? I don't want a war. I want peace. So, and I can't control anyone else's behavior. So I have to be responsible for that within myself. So I have to be thinking about things like love and acceptance and letting go and moving on and rebuilding and trying not to like get trapped in things like anger and resentment and confusion and like, how dare someone have, you know, do X or how could this have happened? That kind of spiraling thinking is not it's not productive. And it leads to, as I found insomnia, 
<laughs> right. And unhappiness, right? Women so, over 40 already don't sleep. So we don't need any more of Thank them, you. I, I don't sleep on a good night. Um, but I love what you say about not overburdening our sort of younger selves with the expectation that we should have that we should have done our future selves more of a solid. Yeah. By making different choices. I mean, I think we all do the best with the information we have and the wisdom we have and the emotional stamina we have in the moment. And so even now, am I probably making decisions that in 10 years I'll be like, oh, yeah. I wish, I mean, I probably, hope so. probably, probably, but I know I'm making decisions, you know, with love and with peace in mind. But it you also know? just means you get to grow, right? Like if you're going to look back and be like, wow, that was a screwed up decision I made back then. Like, okay, well, you know, you made it and yeah, yeah. you've grown from whatever that decision is. I want to say this thing because it keeps sort of threading in my mind that the that the notion of particularly with divorce, right? Like there's this forgiveness element. You shouldn't be angry. Like, don't you want to dance at each other's at your kid's wedding and be happy? No. I hear it all that people are like, I know I shouldn't be angry at my ex. Like, what? What are you talking about? You should be angry about things that feel, you know, unjust forever if you like. What I think we're really talking about is suffering with that anger internally, right? Yes. Like that we are burdened by it as opposed yep. to the emotional reactivity of it. I'm angry 70 times a day. Like I'm angry. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm working. I'm angry at whatever. But, but when, when we are stuck in the belief that things should have been different or other, yes, that makes anger dangerous, right? Yep. Because and that's suffering. That's, that's different. Suffering. Yeah. Pain, pain is not optional pain. You are going to feel it's like it might, and, and maybe forever and ever like, uh, you know, and that's something that I'm talking with, with my therapist. It's like, this will probably hurt forever. Like yeah. it will probably never sit well with you. There are going to be pieces of this that, that sort of like jab you when you move a certain way forever and ever, but that's not suffering. And I that's think it. suffering is like the resistance to what's happened. Like suffering yeah. is like, I can't let it go. I have to figure it out. Like I have to get to the bottom of it. I have to prove that I'm right. And the other person's wrong. I have to, that all is just completely, I don't know. It, like I'm, I'm learning how to sort of conserve my energy. Yes. Better. You need it. Right, for my family trust. and for my work. And, and so, you know, carrying a grudge, that's like my, that's our burden, right? Like if I'm holding a grudge towards someone and carrying around a lot of anger and negative feelings toward them, it's not hurting them. Yeah. Like they don't right. even know, chances are they're not thinking about it at all. That's right. Or, you know, and so if I'm lugging that around with some thinking that it's actually injuring the person that I think it should injure it. That's just silly. So what can I do to set it down for myself? And part of what I can do is right to set it down. That, for so that's exactly when I think when you get into the last third of the book, that's what you feel is that yep. the, the, that the pain is there, the way in which it was tugging on you and ruminations and belief systems is starting, you are starting to transform and walk past that part of the story and you can feel it in the story. And what mm. it, what it reminds me of is how much, um, shame there can be particularly in divorce, right? Like if your partner dies, people just, they don't even know whether you had a good marriage or not. They, yeah. that you are just, oh my God, poor you, but that is not what happens with divorce. And people are often like, I don't even want to talk about your divorce because my marriage is not that great. And so I don't even want to hear, I don't want to hear anything that sounds familiar, but there's a concept. I think of like, if you are still feeling bad about the divorce that you went through, you are also feeling divorce. And that is the, you know, you should be out there wild and skinny jeans and like enjoying yourself. <laughs> and there's, that's a concept that's in grief a lot, which is at what point, Megan, is someone not doing their grief well is, is a version of a question that I get a lot. And, mm. and what I love that your book sort of without being heavy handed sort of outlines is like, it's going to take as long as it takes. Yeah. You're going to have to do whatever it is that you're going to have to do. And if there is suffering, like when people say, when should someone go to therapy? What I know in that question is there's a belief that people shouldn't go to therapy. Mm. That, that, that there's shouldn't still, need to. Yeah, yeah, that there's still a bias that therapy really is only for people who are like really have some mental health issue or failing at something. Whereas if 
you know, no one's ever been like, when should I go to a, to a physical therapist or like, when right. should I go? How to- much does it have to hurt for me to that's, see? So that's attention. exactly it. That is exactly it is yeah. like, it has to hurt, but how much does it have to hurt? And if the question is, is this hurting too much? My answer is go ask someone, yes. go sit with someone. They'll be able to tell you the burden that you are having right now is a burden you are putting on yourself because mm-hmm. you can't unlock the ruminations and the belief that it should have been otherwise. And maybe we need to be more in the grief and the sadness than in the anger and the frustration. And maybe we can move some of that energy through you, not because you're failing at it, but because it sucks to live that way. Yeah, It sucks to live that way. It sucks yeah. to live with the belief that it could have, should have been other and that you are now failing at the thing that you've been handed, which you can't go back and change. Yeah. I have strong firstborn energy. So the idea that I could, that I could like grieve wrong (laughs) is painful. Like, like you're already grieving and then you're going to compound that with like the idea that you're not doing it like at a plus level. And you're not like an A, you're not an AP griever. You're like in remedial grief. I I don't, I don't need that. I mean, it's funny. My therapist recently said, like, I said something about grief and I said, I think I'm, I'm really getting to like, just sort of like clean grief stage, you know, like good, good old clean grief. And, um, and I, and I said, I don't, I don't like it. Um, so is, is there, don't like it. Cause when I one was star. In sort of, no, one star, not even half a Yelp star would not recommend right. tons of notes. Yeah. Like <laughs> when I was angry, when I was trying to figure it out, when I was like in that sort of energy, I think it occupied my brain in a way that protected me in some way from the sad part of it. 100%. And so when I got to just the clean grief, she said, well, I'm, I wondered how long it would take you to get here. And it took me a long time, time. so long, long time. And I said, yes, and I don't like it. So I would like you to tell me like, what are, I would like a multiple choice. Like you can feel sad or what are the other things? And she just was laughing and she's like, no, there's not a multiple choice. Like you just have to feel sad for a while and just be in the feelings. Do not go into your brain. Do not intellectualize it. Do not, which is what I do. And I, I was I was like, okay, I don't, I don't really like that. But what we came up with by the end of that session, which I did like was I do have a multiple choice and it is feel sad and feel ashamed and guilty and think that that is wrong, A, or B, feel sad and know that that is normal. And I went with B. Let's take B. That, God, and that's just a nice little way of reminding us that therapists can help us just even with the frame of thinking, you know, she didn't like lay hands on you and heal you. She helped you frame something so that your mind would twist less. And I think what you just described, it's a hard thing in grief. It's a hard thing to be sort of a hope merchant for someone that's in early grief and be like, it's not always going to feel this way, but part of the, Oh, that's good. That's Dick Schwartz's word. Not mine. He's, I love that. IFS therapy. I do too. I just, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm a lighthouse over here and I'm waving to you. Like, look, there is some danger, but you can go around or you can land or you can get out of your boat. And I think we need those things because everybody has to go through what they have to go through. And just your description of like, hey, I think maybe I was doing all that thinking as a way of not maybe landing on the shore of grief. Mm -hmm. I had right after my mom died, I had all these just relentless thoughts, millions of them of like what I should have done differently so that she would not have died. Yeah. And ruminations are so common. And because I was a trauma therapist, I was like, I know what this is. These are the thoughts that are going to distract me from the, I mean, it could make me cry now. Like what is the truth? Which is I have to go be a person who learns how to live without my mom. Yep. How will I ever, how will I ever have the courage? How will I, how will that ever be okay? I want to do, I'll just do this relentless self-battering forever. Yep. I'll just tap dance until I cannot tap dance anymore. But three years (laughs) in, three and a half years in, I can do more of that. But I do want to just say the honest to God's truth, which is that even though we're writing books, we're having really good conversations. We've both been to therapy. I struggle with all of this all the time. The grieving element is 
relentlessly harder than I expected it to be. Mm. It doesn't mean that there's nothing good in there. There's so much good. Would I want my parents back? Yes. Do I accept that this is where we are? Of course. But the notion that, you know, I put an Instagram post up the other day, just something popped in my head and I was like, oh, just call my mom. She knows the answer to that. And then I just like the whole rest of the fucking day. Yeah. It was like someone had kicked me in the shin. And so the whole rest of the day, I was like, this is what my day, I had so many plans for the day. And this is the day is now I'm sitting here rubbing my stupid shin. Shin. Yeah. From the grief. And I think when, when it's a non-death loss, we, as a culture, we it's, it's coming full circle. It's similar to what we can do as women in marriages is we can be problematic about what we expect of ourselves Mm. in the grieving of the thing. And I feel like what I hear from people in divorce is it is 86% more difficult than the world approaches them as though it is. Right. Oh, wow. I do love a statistic and that right. Feels oh, right no, to I just me. made that statistic up. That's not oh. real. I made that up. Don't please do not take that as a fact. I'm like, I would have gone with 84, but I, I agree <laughs> with you on that. I really I weird. Can we cite that? Where what is that study from? It's <laughs> but a much like a very large percentage of their life includes feeling grief around yeah. the way in which they have not lived into what they thought their life was going to be. Now, 100%. 20 years down the road, that is less, but, yeah. but in those early days, um, and early days, I mean like first five years, years. Yeah. I'm like, please say years, <laughs> years, first five years. Yeah. And, and you know, the, what you like, you don't even get a, you don't even get a day off for divorce. You, you don't do, even, there's get, no bereavement you, leave you don't get a basket. No, no. And chances are your responsibilities have just been ramped up, not down. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's so interesting. Like I was sitting with friends at dinner just a couple of months ago and somebody was like, well, it's not like you, it's like, she's like, you're totally over it. Like, it's not like you're still sad about any of this stuff. Like, look, every, look at everything that's happened. You're totally over it. And I just started crying in the restaurant. And I think I just, I, I mean, this is a friend I've that had. person anymore. She's dead to us. No, so. no, no, no. She's one of my oldest friends of like 20 years, but I think she, I mean, you know, a, maybe I've done a fairly decent job of like seeming fine. Yeah. You know, even my dad, when he read the galley of this book texted me and he said, I didn't realize how much pain you were in. And I was like, what do you mean? You didn't realize how much pain I was in, but you know, I think also I probably worked really hard to seem okay. And to be okay, you know, for myself too, like, you know, if, you know, fake it till you make it. So if I'm doing all the things and I'm able to do all the stuff and I'm you want to look like, and look out how you feel, you want to be no. able to still function in life and you have kids, so you have to function, you but I have also, to function. I also think your dad's comment, which is one that I've gotten with my book too. People are like, I just had no idea. This is what, and I'm like, no, I know. I just looked like I was sitting on my porch swing, but that's, this is what was going on in my head. And this is what yes. was in my body. Well, welcome to my interior. Right. Life. <laughs> this is, but, but it's the reason why the art is so important. And the invitation mm. is so important is to, is to allow someone who is not going to experience it. Right. It's like a great national geographic. I'm like, I'm not going to the top of Everest ever in my life, no. but I'm grateful to have some idea of what it looks like up there because it looks rarefied and extraordinary and very, very difficult. But that's mm-hmm. memoir to me is that, which is you can connect to this through your own experience, but we have a culture out there that we will minimize and the culture will minimize. And actually it's unbearable sometimes. Like it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a truly unique personal experience that also so many other people know about. And I appreciate that that was one of your oldest friends. And she said that, and it made you burst into tears because I think what we tell people is like, well, your good friends know, or your family gets it or people who have also grieved. And I'm like, people who've also grieved are the assholes who say the worst things. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're amazing, but if they haven't worked through their own energy, they're like, oh, well, you know, just screw them. Don't talk to them anymore. Like who can't, what advice is that? But, but even when people show up and I include myself in this as someone who constantly makes mistakes, says the wrong things, forgets, doesn't, you know, 
that really the whole purpose is whether it's someone else minimizing you or you just feeling minimized, like we have to shift that for Mm. the person who's going through the experience, like come back to come back to culture, come back to connection, come back to people. Yes. Because this is a thing that's happening. This is a way that you're transforming, but you're, you know, we are still one of us. We're all, we're all, we, we are all stitched together by grief. And there are some people where they're the way in which they show up. I'm like, you're going to get it one day. And then you're going to call me because you're yep. going to remember you saw me like this. And maybe that will be the purpose of this. I hope yeah. I'm ready. I'm, home. <laughs> I'm confident you will be. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I think, again, one of the threads that's in your book is that you think and think and and do and that it's like a it's like a coil it's like a a, a little circle but it's not a, it's not just a circle it's not a loop mm-hmm, mm-hmm. forward it's just windy it's like oh a, i love that the the spiral the coil right? thinking right? around something but in a way that moves forward wow right yeah. slow but it's happening slow but it's happening just give us a quick what else is going on right now? Cause I know books come out long after they're written. You are about to go do what I have now seen as the juggernaut, which I feel like <laughs> people should get awards. They should be given, I don't know, packages of comfortable clothes in order to travel with all these things. I know that's going to be a big energy and exciting and all that stuff outlay. Um, but what comes, what comes next? What's happening? Yeah. A uh, book tour comes next. I'll be going all over. Um, I'm going to see I, you in DC. Hope- I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah. So I hope people come out and say, hi, I've I've had to zoom the last few books. Um, And so I really miss the, just like the togetherness and the sense of community of like, you know, talking in a room and actually meeting people and signing books and giving hugs. And I just, I miss that like crazy. So as as nuts as I'm sure it will be, um, I'm really looking forward to it. So that that is sort of taking up my spring. Yeah. Um, I have a picture book actually coming oh, out next you year. Do. I do. Oh gosh. Um, so I I haven't shared anything about that yet because I um I the art's still being made and how yeah. I am not illustrating it. No one needs my stick people. Um, so it's actually gorgeous because I did not have anything to do with the art or the design. I just wrote the words, but that's, that's what's up next. And then I'm just writing poems, you know, just slowly chipping away at at what I hope will be my next book of poems. And, you know, they come and knock on the door and I open it and sometimes they don't knock for a couple of weeks, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready for them when they arrive. So I'm so grateful. I love the way you just described that. Cause I always say I wake up with words. Like if I wake up and there are words in my head, I have to write them down. Cause oh, not, absolutely. they're not coming back. They're like nope. you know, just nomads in the desert and I have to do it. And, and I've learned that, but one of the things that I really love and for people who aren't following your, your socials, they should do this is that you give us your poems and then you show us the labor um, the, all the handwriting and the editing. And, you know, as someone who, who I was forced to read poetry, I met extraordinary poets when I was in high school and I, but I was forced to read poetry more than I came to poetry as something that called to me. I, that is a yeah. totally different experience in my adulthood. I feel like, um, my relationship with music was really strong when I was a teenager. My relationship with poetry is really, really, really strong. And I have multiple books where I just sort of flip them open and I, what I really appreciate is they look like, well, those, you know, it's just an eight line little poem there that that very brilliant person put together. And what you show us is like, no, no, no. This is like carving a duck out of wood. It's a lot of curves and a lot of movement and a lot of intention. And, you know, I move this word and I scribble it out and I put, oh, and I, I just love, love that. that. I love yeah, that. I've been, I've been writing, um, doing sort of annotations and writing about them on my Substack, And it's been so much fun to kind of give that behind the scenes so looks cool. at, at poems, because I do think some people have this idea that, that things just sort of come out whole right. cloth. Yeah. Um, and that's actually not how poems, at least for me are built. Right. And so the the tinkering and sort of the decision making, I like to I like to kind of like pull the curtain aside and show people. I think it demystifies the process a little bit for those of us who were maybe maybe not taught poetry in a in a very joyful um, 
open it way. The idea <laughs> that beautiful things can be hard. My youngest son loves musicals and loves music. And we watch like high school musical. I think it's called high school musical, the musical, which is like yeah. a TV show about it. And, you know, the kids who are all wildly talented are constantly breaking out into song and, you know, synchronized dance. And he's like, wouldn't it be great if life was like that? Like, and I'm like, yes, it would be so great if, if when you felt music, it came out perfectly. Yes. And, you know, with dance movements instead of required like a hundred million hours of training and, you know. There I just is. looked at the time and I have kept you forever, which is illegal. <laughs> so I hope the book tour is exactly what you want it to be. I will see you in DC. This on was the- so fun. I'd be, I'd be happy to chat again. So I, yeah. that you are, even if you don't mean it, you made my day. This I mean, is- I don't say things I don't mean. I'm too old for that. <laughs> Maggie, thank right. you so much. It was so great meeting you. I'll and see, you see you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.